Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Few endeavors have engaged the world's best minds more than predicting the weather. Forecasting has improved since the days of sailing ships. Well, now artificial intelligence is coming to bear. My next guest says AI will reshape weather forecasting. Amy McGovern is head of the National Science Foundation's AI Institute for Research in the field of weather and climate. She joins me now. Dr. McGovern, good to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have written extensively then on this topic of AI. It seems logical for AI to augment forecasting. But let me ask you this. What can AI bring to it that all of the supercomputing available to the energy department, to the commerce department, that they bring to bear now, the quadrillions of cycles a week that they run, what can AI do to enhance weather forecasting at this point? There's lots left to do. Weather forecasting is not a solved topic, as you probably know. But I wouldn't say that, you know, your question asking what can we do that supercomputing can't, AI is using a lot of that supercomputing power. So the current weather forecasting models are what they call numerical weather prediction. It's basically simulations of the laws of physics, and they break the atmosphere up into cubes, and they simulate each cube, and they're doing that inside the supercomputer and simulating how the cubes interact with each other. And the laws of physics are difficult to represent everything that's happening at every single level and every single scale, like the giant scales of the huge storms or a system like the jet stream that's moving across at a much larger scale, and then all the way down to something like a tornado that's really, really small. So those models are never going to get everything completely correct. And AI is helping to do a lot of that. So there's a variety of AI applications One of them is that they're just completely replacing those models with AI. Others are that they're taking pieces of those and replacing some of those laws of physics and the simulations and the approximations that they're doing to the laws of physics with AI. And that can be faster. That's one of the big benefits is that it can be much, much faster than what's going on right now on those computers. So imagine you don't know exactly what's going to happen. So you have some uncertainty and you want to say, you know, do a couple of ensembles. Right now, those numerical weather prediction models are extremely expensive to do an ensemble. Once you've trained an AI model, You can do an ensemble very, very cheaply. So you could, in just a few seconds, get a 1,000 ensembles. By the way, is this being tried by NOAA and the National Weather Service and so on? NOAA is certainly actively jumping into the AI space. Those global weather models that I was talking about are primarily being developed by private industry right now inside, at least in the U.S. Outside the U.S., there's some government agencies that are being involved. But NOAA is jumping into that space. So in many ways, then, this is a way to predict chaos, And chaos is not really chaos. It's just that we don't know all the variables that make up to what looks like chaos. Is that a fair way to put it? I would agree with that, but I don't think that we're going to be solving it anytime soon yet either. Right? We're going to be improving our prediction of that chaos, but there's still going to be parts of it that we don't know how to do yet. Because the weather people say we're really good at the next 12 hours. We're darn good at the next 24 hours. The further out you get, then you're into the farmer's almanac territory, which is, you know, a guess and a wet finger in the wind. Well, they can do better than Farmer's Almanac, but Farmer's Almanac is primarily a climatology also, right? So keep in mind that that's what, as you get farther and farther out, climatology becomes really the the better answer. It is harder. The the chaos really does add up over time. Sure. But, you know, yeah, the AI models are, we're already doing really, really well at the the near term, like you brought up, but the AI models can help us improve that long-term forecast. The other thing AI models can do, um, I mentioned that, that the computation right now is really, really slow. And that's just because the way that it works, the laws of physics and everything on those parallel supercomputers are just not super fast. Imagine you're ingesting data in order to make your model run as quickly as possible with as recent of data as you can. It takes about, on today's supercomputers, it takes about a half an hour to give you the next forecast for the next few hours. AI could take that gap 
And we have some work that shows that, that you could then in real time ingest the real time data and give you a, an improved forecast over that next half hour while the, the model's still running. We're speaking with Amy McGovern. She's leader of the National Science Foundation's Institute for Research on trustworthy AI, weather, climate, and coastal oceanography. That takes in a lot that your your unit covers. It has a short name if you want to look us up on a website, by the way, AI2ES.org, with the two being a number. Yeah, I've been there. It's pretty interesting. And we'll have that link at the bottom of the interview when we post this online. But I wanted to ask then, it seems like you're saying that AI can help in two ways. One, actually make better forecasts further out than are possible now, and also maybe to do it cheaper just by condensing computing requirements. Yes, it can do it cheaper and faster. I would say that the training is still a lot of computation, but once you've got the trained model, it's much cheaper and much faster to be able to do those forecasts. Because faster in some ways is better because you can do things sooner, but with conventional techniques, even if you could run them faster, they wouldn't be any more accurate as you get further and further out. Correct. And also faster with the current computational limitations, it's you're running into a limit. The way that it's structured and the way that the parallelization is done, you can't really make it a whole lot faster right now. They're, they're pretty much up against the limits of the machine. Got it. So what does it take then for an organization to bring these kinds of algorithms into their workflows and to really make this part of their operations? They want to work with AI researchers. So we have a convergent team, and I'm using that word specifically. Convergent means that you're working across disciplines and you're working deeply on an interesting problem across those disciplines that all disciplines care about. This is a definition from NSF. And we have a team that is AI scientists working with atmospheric and ocean scientists and also working with social scientists, right? And so my answer to your question is it really takes an interdisciplinary team working together to identify the problem, really understand the needs of your end users, which is what we're doing, and then develop a solution for those end users and then make sure that it's working. That's why it takes all of those members of the team so that they understand the needs, they make sure that it's working. That part about being trustworthy, we're really trying to make sure that not only are we developing trustworthy AI, but we understand what it means to be trustworthy. Right. And one of the elements of trustworthiness is making sure that you use the best and most appropriate data for training whatever the application is you're doing. Is the danger of drift or hallucinations, whatever they call it, increasingly worse outcomes, is that possible when unit, say, like NOAA, is using weather data over and over again. That is to say, you're using data from a very narrow domain and within a well-known set of principles. It seems like a pretty safe way to train your AI. That's an interesting question. One of the things we're doing in our NAI2S is working on the development of responsible and ethical AI for weather and climate. And Initially, people thought, well, you know, these issues about ethical AI don't apply to weather for exactly the reasons you're talking about, right? The, the sensors are objective and they're just giving us information that it's, it's objective. There's no bias to that information. But we've demonstrated that there's a variety of ways in which AI could go really wrong. And I think that's what you're asking about. I mean, you were asking specifically about drift. You could get just drift from having uncertainty in your initial data. I mean, nothing's actually perfect. But you can also make your AI go very, very wrong if there's just bias in your underlying training data and you don't know about that. If you're not correcting for that bias, you could be just amplifying it over time, and that could also be a significant problem. Yeah, what's the type of bias that could be in weather data? Say it's gathered too much from the Atlantic and not enough from the Pacific, or this atmospheric height instead of that atmospheric height? Similar to that, I mean, there's laws of physics bias that you know, are something you can't really get around. So, you know, the satellites can only observe data as they go around and orbit things, so they can only give you so much data at certain intervals. There's also just a lack of data for the global south. 
the global north is pretty well instrumented. The United States, if you if you were to, I know you're doing this as a voice podcast, but imagine a, a map of all the instruments that are measuring everything. The United States is really well instrumented. Most of Europe is really well instrumented. Most of the rest of the world is not as well instrumented. Plus, if you just want to look at the ocean, the ocean's missing an awful lot of sensors. And that could be causing a lot of bias because you're making estimates of what's going on there, but you're not necessarily knowing what's going on. And yet there's the sense that the ocean is really the source of all of the weather stuff that happens in the first place. Yes. The ocean really needs a lot better sensing network. Got it. But, you know, this is not exactly a cheap solution, right? I can't just toss a million dollars at it and go, here, go fix the ocean. No, maybe the CubeSat fleets that could be launched cheaper and cheaper all the time could maybe cover the oceans with satellite data gathering that's not there now. There are a couple of companies that are working on exactly that. And by the way, what is the nature of the AI that is being used in weather? Is it a traditional algorithm that people have understood for a while? Is it the large language model style or what is it? That's an excellent question. It's a mixture of all of them. So there's certainly pieces that are traditional AI. That's what I would call them that are methods that have been around a very long time. But a lot of the more recent work is in deep learning, which is what you're talking about. So deep learning and then getting us into the generative AI models, the large language style, those are foundational and generative AI models. That's more of where those global weather models that I was talking about are going. But in the something like the hybrid models that I mentioned, where you take like a physics-based model and you replace pieces of the physics, those tend to be much smaller deep learning models or a traditional AI model that you've replaced pieces of the physics with. And how would a NOAA or some similar organization know when the AI is actually improving weather forecasting? How do you know? What metrics do you have to say, by golly, we are better at this now because of XYZ? That's a really interesting question. Um, there's a lot of metrics that are known for specific problems. So if you want to study tornadoes, then you you know look at the specific metrics that everybody uses for tornadoes. You want to look at hurricanes, you do that. And so the, the metrics, I can't give you a metric now because there's the metrics are different for each problem. But the other answer to your question is there's test beds and NOAA has a variety of test beds. And those test beds are where they test out new technology, which is what you want, right? You don't want new technology to just be deployed instantly and potentially be broken. So they bring things into those test beds, they test them out, they give feedback, and then you do that until the people are happy with it. And the forecasters or whoever it is that's adopting the technology is happy with it. And then it gets transitioned over. Right. So you could have, say, a weather sensing station, a dozen of them, and say, well, this is what we say they're going to read out in 12 hours now. And then over a year, compare what you thought they would read in 12 hours and what they actually read out in 12 hours. You could plot improvement in that way. Fair? Yes. I mean, we're not generally just predicting whatever you're sensing at a station, but yes. I mean, there's a test bed in Norman called the Hazardous Weather Test Bed that happens in the spring. They focus on the huge tornado hail outbreaks that happen, and they do that for only six weeks. Right. I like your idea of a year because getting experience over time gives you trust in the models, but it gives you a chance to really focus in and they bring in a different set of forecasters every week. We have a model that's being tested in the Weather Prediction Center and Ocean Prediction Center, which is in D.C., that is identifying fronts, cold fronts, warm fronts, et cetera, across the United States. And, you know, you said in the beginning something and then you corrected yourself. And I'm, I'm going to go with that one. We're not replacing those forecasters. There are forecasters right now that their job is literally to draw the fronts. We're trying to augment their data and trying to give them a faster way to do it. They're testing our methods right now, right? And then they give us feedback. Oh, we think that this is working really well here, but you're struggling over the Rockies, for example, which is, by the way, a known problem. It's harder to identify that data over the Rockies because there's a lack of data over the Rockies, right? And so we get that feedback back. We try to fix the model. So that's just an example of how those test beds work. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Amy McGovern is the leader of the National Science Foundation's Institute for Research on Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate, and Coastal Oceanography. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across 
geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening 
two very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.